and need it. And then I love its enlivening properties and what it does in other people's lives. But some through the years have weaponized grace. They seek to give grace a black eye. They marshal arguments saying things like this. Eric, if you push grace too far, you're going to get to the point where you are saying we relate to God by grace and not by how we live. Eric, they'll all live like heathens if we get there. Grace can't be all that. Or worse, hey, Eric, I was saved by grace, not according to works. I mean, that's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Even works of obedience didn't save me. So, Eric, since they don't save me, I can live however I want. I was saved by grace back then, and I live by grace now. In this area, there's also quotes like, hey, Eric, I got grace. You got grace. I made a profession of faith when I was five. You know, once in grace, always in grace. Isn't that right? Well, here's my comment. Don't abuse grace and call it theology. When it comes to this, I have a simple earthly theology in these areas. Go something like this. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck. If it doesn't walk like a duck and doesn't talk like a duck, even though it says it's a duck, it's not a duck. If grace lays hold of a life, it shows up in how we live. That's what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 6. Let's go there together this morning and think of it. Romans chapter 6. Paul has spent Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 talking about the glory of the grace of God. The free grace of God. Look at verse 17 of chapter 5 as he gets to the mountain peak. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, speaking of Adam, this is where we've been, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. Grace in abundance. The free gift of righteousness. He's just heralded the glory of this message about Jesus. But now the critics come in and they begin to hound him. So in chapter 6, he addresses the critics and that's before us this morning. If you don't live like Jesus, don't tell me how you've been converted to Jesus because the true saints persevere. The false ones who never knew Jesus, this is what he's getting to at the end of Matthew chapter 7, they don't live like a saint. Grace transforms. Come to Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. Now what I want you to listen for are the words death and dead and sin and life and resurrection. And watch for how he uses baptism 
to help explain grace's effect upon us. Romans 6.1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Ken, is Ruby with you this morning? Oh, Ruby, welcome back. It's really good to see you. We've been praying for you, sister. Praise the Lord. I'm sorry. Couldn't help it. Back to 6-2. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I want to go three different directions this morning. First, I want you to know that free grace has its critics and Paul faces them, but that's where we'll start. Point one. Secondly, We must answer the critics, and Paul draws the lesson from baptism as an explanation for this criticism of grace. We're going to look at what baptism means and how it's a picture of grace's effect upon our living. And finally, we need to ask ourselves then, are we living under the influence of grace? Could we be accused and found guilty of living grace-filled lives. How do we know? We'll be looking at that, and we'll start looking at it this morning and come back to it again in the future. God allows us to be together. So first, God's free grace has critics. The question that the critics raise is this. Does grace promote reckless sin? Uh, They use Thoughts like this. Eric, let's just continue sinning since God's grace is free and always greater. In fact, they may say, hey, our life verse is Romans 5.20. You've just been there. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Now, here's what Paul does. He starts with a question about, all right, what are we to conclude about all of this? What is the this? Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. This free grace, the gift, much more of righteousness. What shall we say then? 
Paul starts with this. This thinking by the critics is crazy. This thinking is crazy. What conclusion are we to draw? Chapter 6, verse 1. He poses the critic's logic with his question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now you remember that he has written in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. There's real change. This thinking is crazy. He argues that this thinking is diametrically opposed to what it means to be a Christian. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, because one of the characteristics of a follower of Jesus is the cessation of an unceasing continuing in sin. He frames it in a grammatical sense in the strongest of terms, absolutely not. Verse 2, by no means. He cannot say it any more emphatically than that. To believe in Jesus is to take up his life. It's a different way of life. It's his agenda, not our own. It's a life bearing the distinguishing marks of who he is and how he is. We take up his life, our life, enfolded in his God's grace not only forgives sin, God's grace delivers us from sinning. Some have great appreciation for being released from their sin and forgiveness, but have lesser appreciation for abandoning sin altogether, which the grace of God not only is intended to forgive us of our sin, but to deliver us from our sin as well. Sin in the life of a baptized believer is an oxymoron. It doesn't belong. It's foreign. Because we've now been associated with Jesus, which is an association with a whole different kind of living that's apart from that. What if the New York Times on Tuesday morning published this picture on the front page? They go to a cabinet meeting tomorrow for President Biden. Seated around the table in that conference room are all of his cabinet officers. And the picture is shot, and there he sits, one cabinet member. He has a red hat on. On the front of the hat, it says, Make America Great Again. They snap the picture and put it on the front of the New York Times paper. And people would say, what in the world? They would say there is a fundamental incongruity from that red hat with any association with President Biden's administration. Now, this is not a political statement. It's not a point. It's simply trying to illustrate the incongruity of somebody sitting in a President Biden cabinet meeting wearing that hat. This is Paul's argument in Romans 6 about the grace of God and the effect that it is to have on our living. This thinking that, hey, grace is so good, I'll just keep sinning to make grace all the better. Paul says, no, that, that, that doesn't fit at all. Free grace has its critics, and Paul faces them here. Now, how does he face the critics? 
Secondly, we answer the critics by looking at, of all things, believers' baptism. What does Paul do? Where does he go? You know where he goes? He goes to the baptistry. And he starts talking about the meaning of baptism as an argument against those who abuse grace. You say, Eric, how how does he do that? Look at verse 2. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. The meaning of believer's baptism shapes our answer to the critics. How does he answer them? He accents two aspects of believer's baptism. First, the drama of baptism identifies us with the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. The drama of baptism identifies us with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Think of how immersion plays out. Now, at Calvary, we practice what is called believer's baptism. Now, believer's baptism means you believe first and then you are baptized. Why do we do that? Well, that's the scriptural order. Look at, for example, Acts 8, 12. They believe Philip as he was preaching the gospel to them and those who believed were then baptized. The order is believe, and then be baptized. So we practice what's called believer's baptism. Now at Calvary, we practice baptism by immersion. Now Baptists are famous for this, and they're famously mocked for this. We dunk them here. And of course, throughout church history, there have been three modes of baptism, the sprinkling or effusion, you know, get a pitcher of water poured out like the Spirit of God coming over them, uh, or Immersion. You say, Eric, why do we do immersion? We do immersion because of the meaning of this term baptism. It's a term that means to dip or immerse. It's actually a secular term that comes out of the textile industry uh, where they dyed cloths. If you and I worked at a textile mill and our job, we were a dyer, we'd go to the clock in the morning and they'd say, all right, Mounts, look, you go to vat eight. They'd have these big vats of water, build a fire under it. This is first century rudimentary dyeing. You'd take bolts of cloth. Let's take a bolt of cotton cloth and uh, uh, take it down. You're in charge of vat 12 today. Well, what's vat 12? Well, it's orange. So you take orange dye, you dump it in there. You take a big stirring stick and stir it up. Get the fire hot. Take the bolt down. And you know what they called the process of throwing the bolt of cloth in? They called it? Mounts, you go down and baptize that cloth. Now, when they did it, they were not sprinkling the cloth or pouring water over the... They were immersing the cloth in the dye so that the dye would adhere to the cloth. This is the secular use out of which, then, the church picks up this term, and it alludes to baptism. So why do we dunk them? Because that's the meaning of the term. Why do we dunk them after they believe? Because that's the scriptural order. So what does it mean then? Here he explains baptism. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Hear the word of the Lord. The drama of baptism identifies us with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Vaughn has said, our baptism is sort of a funeral. It's a funeral for the old life. It's like, this is who I was. 
before I came to know Jesus. That person is dead. I've told you before about a famous doctor in a small community that I served in West Lansing, Michigan. He was famous for drinking with his buddies, came under the hearing of the gospel, and was wondrously converted to Christ. He was actually ruining his life and his practice. He had become dependent upon alcohol. And so his buddies came to him after he came converted to Christ, and he wasn't sure how to respond to them. And they came to him and kept asking him, hey, let's go, because it was their habit to go to the watering holes and, and, you know, drink. And finally, he answered the door and said to them, I want you to know that that Doc Bell is dead. He's gone. He's dead. I don't do that anymore. And that was the end. That's the notion that is embedded here. We're dead to those things, dead to sin, dead to sin's influence over us. J.B. Phillips said this. Some of you may have read his uh, paraphrase of the New Testament before. It's not the literal impossibility of sin in the life of believers which Paul is declaring. But the moral incongruity of it. It's not that we cannot sin. It's that after we come to place our faith in Christ and take up his life to sin, there's a fundamental incongruity of this new life with our sin because that old life has died and we buried it and have been raised to new life. John Stott said it it is an essential anomaly of living in sin when we have died to it. Do we have any Zombies here? (laughs) Still living when dead to sin? Zombie sinners? I'm not too deep into the zombie world, but it just occurs to me that that illustration may fit. By the way, this is a side note. You know what Paul assumed about every believer in Jesus Christ? He assumed that they had been scripturally baptized. His allusion to baptism doesn't make any sense. If, if half of the crowd had not been baptized after they placed their faith in Christ. In fact, F.F. F. Bruce says there's no such thing as an unbaptized member of the family of God in the New Testament. That doesn't mean that you are not a member of God's family until you're baptized. It just means everyone in the New Testament who did come to place their faith in Christ followed that with baptism. Are you here this morning and never been baptized? Oh, I encourage you. It would be our joy to participate in that declaration of your faith in Christ and the, the ritual of this drama, this picture that God has hung up in his church. Paul did not regard baptism as an optional extra in the Christian life. The drama of believer's baptism identifies us with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now the second aspect of baptism that he accents is this. Now our lives are lived in union with Christ. You say, Eric, what's going on in 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9? He's talking about in baptism we identify with Jesus' life. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, taking our judgment from God. He put sin to death and we identify with his death. He was buried. He was raised to new life. 
and our identification with Jesus, our union with him, now shapes how we live. Grace has a contour, and it shows up in practical holiness in our life. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's say your work group is brainstorming, and the head of your group is a sharp gal, and she's going to make a presentation to the board, and you're all having uh, ideas about what ought to be, and you come up with the most brilliant original thought you've ever had. And she listens to what you said, and she says, wow. I am going to incorporate that very thing into my presentation. I'm going to take yours and I'm going to, I'm going to assimilate it into mine. There's going to be a union between what I was going to say and what you just said, and we're going to put them together and integrate it in there. It'll be an integrated whole, and when I present it, it will be your idea swallowed up in my presentation. If you can stand it, that's baptism. It's our little life, a sinful mess to a person, swallowed up in the glory of the perfections of Jesus. Our lives hidden with Christ in God. Our lives coming in together, coupling together, a union. Notice the word union is used. United. We will certainly be united with him. Now, by all accounts, the Afghan withdrawal was a great tragedy, including loss of life for some valorous Marines. We left a lot of military assets behind, just billions of dollars. But we were supposed to find solace in what we were told about it. And I believe they did their dead level best with the time that they had to do it, but that is, they disenabled every operating vehicle they could so that it could not operate as it was to be operated. Now, think of what it means to disenable. In our union with Christ, baptism paints a picture of our disenabling ourselves from sin. It doesn't operate like it used to because we've been made new. And we disenable, and we'll get to it the next time we're together in Romans 6. We disenable the members of our body to be presented for such sinful purposes because that old person was dead and we buried him. And we've been raised in a new kind of life. This is the picture of baptism. Bo Jackson was a great football player for Auburn College. He won the Heisman Trophy, the award for the best football player that year, and he was just a phenomenal athlete. He was really a freak. He was also an incredible baseball player. He could smack a baseball a country mile and hit it so hard and just played with abandon everything he did. He played both professional football and then he would play professional baseball, and he went back and forth. He was playing against the Bengals, and 
he was given the ball on a handoff and he veered to the sideline and busted through the line and got to the second level and raced down the sideline. And he was tackled from behind by a guy who grabbed a hold of his leg and in the way that he landed, it disenabled his hip joint from operating as it ought. In some freakish way, it took away, as I recall, the... uh, nourishing blood flow to the tissue to keep everything going and keep the bone alive. That was it. His career was over. In that, oh yeah, he got his hip replaced and he came back to baseball, had that, you know, bionic hip it was told and he was even ran on his replaced hip. But that was it because that one tackle disenabled him from being able to run that freakish way that he ran before. Now, That's a sad story. But the great story of grace is that grace tackles the joints of our hip that would drive forward in sinful indulgence and makes us whole and unable to do that any longer. So that we've buried that life and raised up in a new kind of life so we don't spurn grace And wasted on continuing indulgence. But grace disenables us from dishonoring our Lord in sinful living. We are to disenable the effects of sin upon our lives in this union with Christ. Well, finally then, what effect does grace have on us? Could we be arrested this morning and given an L-U-I? Now we've heard of DUIs, where persons operate a motor vehicle under the influence of controlled substances. Something other than them is controlling how they're trying to operate or not able to operate their vehicle very well. Well, grace has such an effect upon us. It has an influence on how we live. Could we be arrested and given a ticket, an LUI? or L-U-G, living under grace. And if we were and had to convince a jury that in fact it was, what would it look like and what would your arguments be? Now, living under grace involves three things. We'll look at two of them this morning. Anybody who studies Romans chapter 6, there's three words you lay hold of. One is the word know. The other is the word, on the King James, it's reckon. It's a word in the English Standard Version that's consider. It's used 41 times in the New Testament, an important word. No reckon, yield. Now, the next time we're together, we'll look at this yield stuff because we need to master this yield stuff, whatever it is, grace's work in our life. But this morning, to conclude, we'll look at two things, what we know and what we are to consider Notice the mind's role in living a God-pleasing life. First, how we think. What does living under the influence of grace actually involve? It involves how we think. We know that our identity is built on our union with Jesus. Look at verse 3. Do you not know? Look at verse 6. We know. Look at verse 16. This is where he's going to continue. Do you not know? Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. Or do you not know? There are things we must know. 
a, a renewed mind is one of our four R's, a part of our DNA. We need to take the word of God and have it shape our minds. It's why we dig into the text such as we are even this morning. We know. There is something that a believer knows about who they are and whose they are that shapes their living. Is that you? Is that me? Just characteristic of us as God's people. Um, Rearing our children, uh, whatever they started, we urged them to complete. Uh, We were, again, quitting at our house. And we would often tell our children, whether it was sweeping the dining room floor or writing up the table or doing the chore in the backyard or doing their homework, look, mounces aren't quitters, arguing that it was something characteristic of us that would prod us forward. It was uncharacteristic of amounts to quit. So don't unplug the sweeper. Don't put it up. You're not done yet. Finish the job because that's who we are. It, it's, it's modestly amusing and yet affirming now to hear this as a new generation emerges in this pack of grandkids that Lord has graciously given us to hear their parents say, hey, now mounts aren't quitters. You've got to stay at it and keep going. Something characteristic of us. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, believers in Jesus, touched by God's grace, that's not who we are to live like that. We don't do that. We don't do that. We have to think about ourselves in that way. Who are we? We are people associated with Jesus, united in union with him by faith to live, to live like we're living in union with him. We don't have to forge an identity. It's been forged for us. We are in Christ and we know how to live because he lived that life out in front of us and calls us to it. And here we are with our lives hidden with Christ and God given to him. What does living under the influence of grace actually look like? It looks like how we think. We know that our identity is built on our union with Jesus Christ. Remember, as a man or a woman or a boy or a girl thinks within their heart, so are they. We have to think well. Secondly, it's how we yearn. If thinking relates to the mind, this yearning relates to the heart. This is the wellspring of our aspirations. One of the things that's fun to do to get to know a person is just get around them and listen and watch for what makes their heart tick and what does their life beat with a throb for? What are they after? What are they reaching for? What drives them? How we yearn shows whether or not grace has laid hold of us. Because how we yearn, we reckon the wellspring of our lives in flesh to be unresponsive to sin and responsive to righteousness. Look at verse 10 and 11. For the death he died, he died to sin. If we live in union with him and he died to sin, hello, we are living in union with him to die to sin as well. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider, reckon, here's our term, consider yourselves dead to sin but alive unto God and Jesus Christ. You say, Eric, how do I think about how I'm supposed to live? Consider yourself dead. Some things off the table. I'm dead to that. 
I, 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 I can't go there because that's not who I am. And my yearnings, we groom our yearnings and train our yearnings not to go there. Consider yourselves. It's an accounting term, a reckoning term. It's something we attribute to ourselves. Christ has laid out the way to life, and his way to life is the way of life in him. This defines how we order our lives. Eric, I don't know how to live. Follow, remember? The person who has established his life upon the rock is one who observes everything that I have commanded them to do. Matthew chapter 7. Christ laid out a way of life, which is a way to life. We don't have to garner a following. We don't have to work on a robust identity on social media. We are in union with the greatest influencer of all time, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The influencer of all influencers. He's called us to live for him. This is about core life passions and affections. This is about our heart. Remember Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants after the water brook, so my heart pants after you. See, what's going on in that guy's heart? Grace has laid hold of him. Inexorably, that's what happens. Have we inventoried, inventoried our yearnings lately? What are the yearnings of your heart? Oh, see, Eric, I want to be rich. I'm kind of encouraged by this lotto stuff. Eric, there's a 7-Eleven out in Grant County someplace, you know, nobody even knows. I get all my tickets there because I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hit it. You know, the, the, uh, the ticket was picked in May, in Maine this week, and I have a buddy in Maine. When I got up, I was reading the news, I saw it, and I texted him. I said, look, should I send the offering envelope this week or next week? And I really appreciated what he wrote back. He said, oh, I'm really glad it wasn't me. I'd hate to be that person. It's amazing the yearnings of people in Western culture and what's in their heart. And what's even more amazing to me is how much the yearnings of Western culture seep into the yearnings of the hearts of people who follow Jesus living in Western culture. What do you really want? And is your wanter, is my wanter shaped by the grace of God and Jesus Christ and my union with him? That's what this text is asking us. Is it dead to the old life? Or is the old life still very much alive in my life? Prenuptially in life, there's a lot of stuff that's off the table. Isn't that true? How about this? Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Aren't those off the table prenuptially? In this life, this union with Jesus Christ? How's it going where you are? How's it going where I am? Have we closed the door to the sins of the Spirit? Pride, power, prestige. Have we closed all the windows, the sins of the flesh? Or do we leave the door unlocked and leave it open? Any doors that need to be shut this morning? One of the greatest joys of knowing Jesus is he gets right next to us where we are, puts his arm of grace around us, and walks us forward into the life 
that he has always wanted for us in the life that would bring us to our deepest satisfaction because God made us for himself and made us to walk with him. Are we living out our baptisms here at Calvary? Is the grace of God shaping who we are? May God find us people with grace templates over our speech and conduct, our faith and life and our purity. Father in heaven, how do you want this message to be received this morning by your people? Father, what affirmation do you want to give to those who are giving their members to you and considering themselves dead to sin and alive in the Christ? I want them to hear from you. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. Lord, I pray for anyone who needs a nudge from the Spirit of God to be baptized, maybe never having been baptized before, to even get involved in the drama of this exercise that speaks to what our life is to look like the rest of our days, putting off the old and putting on the new. Father, I pray for anyone who needs help from you to shut the window to some advantage we are giving to our own indulgence. Anybody who needs help locking the door to disenable the sinful mechanism that seems to be besetting us, thank you that you are here. It's still true, Lord. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. But your grace is given not to give us license to sin, but to give us power to be transformed. What amazing grace we find in Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us live with integrity for you. Work in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.